Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, South Africa's response to the COVID-19 outbreak has been proactive and agile. What are the enduring obstacles and emerging challenges for this pivotal country? And Nigerian President Buhari's leadership and the country's federal structure presents challenges to the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What are the opportunities to slow the negative health and economic impact of this disease? Plus, we discuss how COVID-19 is altering predictions about the future of work in Sub-Saharan Africa. So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. South Africa's response to the COVID-19 outbreak has been a regional standout. As a result of these measures we imposed and the sacrifices that you made, we have managed to slow the rate of infection and prevent our health facilities from being overwhelmed. What are the best practices from the South African experience? Joining me today to discuss South Africa and other issues is Laird Traber, a senior State Department liaison for Prosper Africa, Chuka Oyenkenwa, the executive director at the Center for the Study of Economies of Africa, based in Abuja, Nigeria, and Vij Ramachandran, a senior fellow at the Center for Global Development. In May, my colleague Topaz Mkulu and I published a Critical Questions article on South Africa's response. Our assessment was that Cyril Ramaphosa's leadership has been exemplary. He's been an effective communicator, listened to experts, and leveraged his country's experience fighting HIV, AIDS, and other infectious diseases. Laird, you were the economic counselor at the U.S. Embassy in Pretoria, so I'd love to hear your take. What's working and perhaps what are the challenges ahead? Judd, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I look forward to the conversation. I, I agree with you. I think uh, a lot of what South Africa has done, particularly under the leadership of President Ramaphosa, has been exemplary. And I think I, I would maybe point to a couple of things just uh, in terms of, of the measures that have worked, and then I'll, I'll talk about maybe a couple of challenges uh, that he also faces. Clearly, I think taking the, a bunch of very clear decisions early on and communicating them clearly to the public were very, very helpful. I think it's also been very helpful uh, in terms of the testing regime that the government has set up. Uh, I know they're looking for more test kits now. They're trying to expand uh, the scope and coverage, but uh, they've done a number of innovative things, including some mobile test kits. They've clearly reached out to townships and some of the disadvantaged communities, et cetera. So I think all of that has given them a lot of the data they needed to to actually uh, figure out where they needed to to intervene, to flatten the curve, uh, what they needed to do, et cetera. The other thing was, I think, that uh, step that they took that was very helpful was from the beginning, they were quite clear that there would be some real impacts on the economy. And uh, they also partnered with the business community in South Africa, including foreigners like American companies. Uh, it's notable the, the B4SA, the Business for South Africa coordination with the South African government has been exemplary in terms of identifying key areas of the economy uh, that would be challenging and some clear steps that needed to be taken uh, in terms of getting the economy up and going again. That's maybe perhaps where we should go next is, is talking about some of those challenges. Well, why don't you walk us through some of those? And maybe I'll just add before we get to them, 
what I think has been really remarkable about Cyril is his humility. So just the day before we recorded this episode on, on May 14th, he gave a big speech and, and actually came right out with some of the challenges that they've had. And this will preview probably what you're going to say, Laird. But he said, look, some of the actions we have taken have been unclear. Some have been contradictory and some have been poorly explained. And he also said the enforcement has been inconsistent and too harsh. And I just marvel at a leader who is confident enough to take a self-assessment in the middle of a crisis and communicate what wasn't working and, and what's going well. Yeah, Jen, I would completely agree with that. I think the, in terms of the challenges, the unfortunately for South Africa, this, uh, you know, shall we say, you know, the actual onset in March came after uh, what had already been a tough year. There was a ratings downgrade. Uh, this, uh, the ratings downgrade in January and February came, uh, frankly, after five years of slow or no economic growth. There's a number of challenges that South Africa has been coping with, particularly related to the previous government, including some corruption, but also the need to undertake a number of economic reforms, particularly for uh, the state-owned enterprises, which form such a crucial part of the overall economy. Things like uh, the state electricity provider, ESCOM, uh, South African Airways, etc. cetera. Uh, so unfortunately, South Africa entered the onset of COVID uh, in a very difficult fiscal challenge in terms of the problems of not having addressed some of these structural reforms had come home to roost. And now with COVID, with the economic shutdown, uh, that has added. So instead of 2 or 3% economic growth this year, which some folks had hoped might happen, uh, they're looking at a 6 to 8% decline in GDP. And all this really exacerbates not just the pre-existing problems, but will make it much harder uh, to address the, for me, uh, the big, single biggest challenge, which is finding jobs for South Africans. Uh, South Africa was already at something like 29% unemployment in the formal sector and the shutdown, uh, as well as the impact, particularly on smaller and medium-sized enterprises, uh, that total will increase. It's going to be a very challenging year uh, in terms of, of getting some of those sectors started again. And the last thing I'll say is a lot of the ways that South Africa would tend to have recovered or areas they would look to have recovered uh, will be difficult this year. They have a very significant uh, exporting base in terms of manufacturing and services, things like that. But their top three export markets are Europe, United States, and China, um, all three of those are facing their own economic downturns. Other sectors that might normally have been looked to for early growth, uh, things like tourism, things like financial services, et cetera, are also facing uh, real significant changes uh, that will be happening, real challenges for the short term. Uh, and so the, uh, this will be a very tough year for, for South Africa in terms of navigating what will be some medium term challenges. We can perhaps get into what the future might look like a little bit, but it's South Africa will need to undertake some of these tough reforms. And of course, it's always easier to do so you know, when times are good. But unfortunately, all too many countries uh, wait until a crisis where everything just becomes harder. Yeah, in, in South Africa, I think many are echoing one of the complaints or one of the challenges that we have here in the United States, which is, is the cure worse than the disease? And so there has been a lot of hand-wringing and, and people's lives that have been deeply, deeply hurt by, you know, the stringent lockdown. And 
this is tough, right? There are tough trade-offs between protecting the economy and then curbing COVID-19 spread. We're actually going to be having a debate on this topic at CSIS. Uh, but Juka, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the trade-offs and how do you deal with this challenge of addressing the economy or protecting the economy, but you know, protecting people's health. And in South Africa, of course, there's the deep inequality, which is a legacy of apartheid that makes things even more difficult. So Ramaphosa's got so many challenges ahead of him to to address, both in terms of ensuring access for all South African citizens, as Laird said, making sure the economy is open and can manage and weather this. What is your sense on the best way to sort of thread this needle? How does South Africa avoid a worst case scenario? Starting with the trade-offs, you know, the trade-off between covering the spread of the virus and protecting the economy is a global issue. But it, in Africa, it, is, it has very serious implications given the high incidence of poverty in many countries. The key issue here is the predominance of the informal sector where livelihood often depend on a steady flow of small daily savings and also negative income shocks resulting from the slowdown or even the collapse of the economy and its effects on social coercion and governance. Narrowing down to South Africa, South Africa is characteristically an unequal society. The country has deep economic social inequalities that has persisted since the apartheid era. For example, about 7 million people live in the richest 20% of households, while about 45 million people live in the poorest 20% of households. In South Africa, about 3 million people work in the informal sector and live in informal settlements. These have low earnings, majority earn below the income tax threshold. And these informal settlements, they have high densities, high population densities, short supply of water, toilet facilities, and waste collections. So these in itself lends itself to high risk of disease transmission. And with the COVID-19 and measures such as the lockdown, economic activities have halted, threatening the ability of informal workers to earn income at all. And the peculiar case of South Africa is that these challenges have racial and social dimensions, which can also worsen already existing racial tensions and incidents of xenophobia. In terms of what this, the government can do, I think there is an urgent need for the government to provide incentives for formal businesses to formalize. And this will enhance both revenue generation through taxes, as well as effective targeting of social protection interventions during this outbreak. But on the positive side, we've seen South Africa under the leadership of Cyril Ramaphosa doing a good job compared to most African countries in responding to this COVID-19 outbreak. In South Africa, there was timely re- response in implementing the, ro- the lockdown measures, effective and widespread testing, and the approach has been collaborative, involving CSOs, religious organizations, and other informed citizens in enhancing this compliance. The president, as the AU chair, can use such platforms at the AU to engender a, an Africa-wide strategy for COVID response in the short, medium, and long term drawing lessons from from the South African um, experience. South Africa can champion peer learning initiatives and technical assistance um, to other countries in order to 
improve their capacity to, to respond to this, this pandemic. Chuka, you read my mind. That is exactly where I wanted to end our conversation. I mean, first, I, I agree with your policy prescriptions. I think South Africa is doing a good job on some of those pro-poor policies that you mentioned, and particularly, I think, uh, making it easier for businesses to lend money. But this question about can Ramaphosa lead, I think he's been one of the strongest AU chairs that we've seen in the, the history of that organization. And what I'd like to see him do is not only sort of galvanize and assemble, you know, the crack team of finance ministers and former business leaders that he has to talk to the G20. But I think one of the tests ahead of Ramaphosa as the AU chair is what does he do with the Burundis and the Tanzanias and some of the countries that are are really uh, been problematic in their response. So those are, I think, really good points, Chuka, and I think some things for us to watch. Now, I'd like to move to Nigeria. We have always been complaining that Nigeria has weak health system. And this weak system is about the poor or the perennial low budget of fund to the health system. Maybe Chuka will agree, maybe he won't, but I haven't been as bullish on the Nigerian response to COVID-19. First, President Buhari is not a great communicator. As one of his defenders said, it's not his style. Uh, but there's been a number of really worrying numbers of unexplained deaths coming out of first Kano State, but now there's been reports in Bauchi State, in Yobe State, uh, in other places in the north. I think it tells you a lot about the challenges of a federal system, just like here in the United States, where we see a diversity of responses across our country. That's been the case in Nigeria. Strong response, perhaps in Lagos, not strong in other places. And it does make a national response difficult, even when you have very competent health experts running the Nigerian CDC, etc. So, Chuka, please disagree with me. Let, let me know. What do you think? What would be your sort of grade scorecard for the federal government and then maybe some of the states? Please don't go through all 36. Uh, and then what are the, uh, the, you know, the economic implications in your mind? Actually, I agree with you in terms of differences in communication style between the South African president and a Nigerian president. Communication is not really the strength of this, um, the president of Nigeria, President Buhari. However, beyond his personal communication deficiencies, he has really empowered key institutions by setting up the presidential tax force on COVID-19, which includes key institutions like the health ministry, the center for disease control, aviation ministry, and other relevant um, agencies. Similar to South Africa, Nigeria has also experienced, I've gathered some experience in tackling infectious disease, given previous outbreaks such as Ebola, polio, and Lassa fever. Thus, they, they already have institutions in place to tackle the, this, this sort of outbreak, even though the funding has not been adequate. However, with limited resources available, the NCDC has been quite active in working with the Ministry of Health and implementing a COVID response at both the federal and state levels. On the positive side, they've increased testing and uh, contract tracing capabilities, created and expanded isolation centers, you know, and then increased the frequency and um, scale of communication. You know, there's daily communication on, on cases, recoveries, and deaths across Nigeria. However, with test levels of about 30,000 people 
you know, cumulatively, it is still very low compared to, you know, given the population of 200 million um, people in Nigeria. At the state level, success is dependent on how effective the state administration coordinates with the health agencies like the CDC and also the availability of resources. So you see states like Lagos that have, you know, that is highly resourceful in terms of, you know, they have a high internally generated revenue. So they've shown some good mileage and success in mobilizing resources, establishing you know, isolation centers. And you've seen, we've seen, you know, a high number of recoveries from those states. You know, the, the governor of River State has been very aggressive in imposing lockdowns. He personally goes around the streets, hunting people that violate the lockdown measures. Kano State has been the problem. It's a commercial city, it's densely populated, about 13 million people in Kano State, and they have a cultural and religious practice that encourages um, community gatherings. You know, so they, they, at first they, they, have, they find it really difficult to comply with um, the social distancing measures, but the government has had to come in and really impose lockdown uh, measures in Cairo State. And then a lot of um, community engagement, risk communications have been, have been implemented in the state to really educate the masses because also the Northern states in Nigeria also battle with a lot of illiteracy. And they need, need to really educate them about how dangerous this, this um, outbreak is, is and for them to comply with the social distancing measures. So we expect um, that to really drive down these rising cases in Kano and some of the northern states. But on the whole, success at the state level really depends on the availability of resources in terms of the state's income and revenue, you know, and also the willingness of the, of the state government, you know, the administration in place. They're moving to the economic challenges, the economic implications of this outbreak of Nigeria. It has been you know, quite severe. Nigeria has a twin challenge of tackling the COVID-19 pandemic and the recent crash in oil prices. You know, this has caused huge fiscal challenges, a decline in revenue, as well as cuts to planned expenditure, which have both short and long-term impacts on the real sector. You know, with a cut in capital expenditure, it will further weaken the capacity to tackle this very outbreak and other outbreaks in the future. Nigeria has the highest um, poverty incidence and with job losses caused by these disruptions and also the negative effects on the informal economy, the poverty situation is likely to worsen. So in essence, Nigeria is really facing a perfect storm. Let's bring vision because one of the things that is getting a lot of attention is sort of the way in which burgeoning technology sector and mobile phones are perhaps providing some, I mean, these these are in some respects band-aids, uh, but some ways in which people can uh, address sort of the inability to get access school or to get medical. And Vid, you wrote this great report about Nigeria's tech sector, and I, I thought maybe you could help give us some realistic sense on what can technology in the Nigerian case help us when it comes to COVID-19? Thanks, Jad. Thanks for having me on, on your show. I do think the, the tech sector in Nigeria can help a lot. 
and in a few different ways. First of all, there's a number of health tech companies in the tech sector that are reducing inefficiencies, that are saving money, that are connecting people to doctors. There's one example, LifeBank. It's a company that matches the need for blood with existing supplies of blood. It's greatly improved the efficiency in terms of uh, patients who desperately need a blood transfusion, getting a blood transfusion on time by delivering blood from where it's deposited to where it's required. So that's an example of a health company. But then there's also you know, a number of companies in the tech sector that I think can help to improve consumer safety. And this has become a big issue all over the world. So it's everything from contactless payment systems to you know, uh, delivery systems that are safer than going into a store or going into a, a, a supermarket. So I think in a number of ways, the, the, the tech sector, which is thriving in Nigeria, it has a booming tech sector. I think they will come up with many ways to keep people more safe, to deliver health services more efficiently, to be able to order medical supplies, for example. All of those things I think can be done better with the use of technology and we're seeing a lot of these applications emerge in this very difficult environment. Well, I'm really glad that you came out so positive. I, I have to sometimes curb my enthusiasm for the technical solutions. So uh, I'm really glad that it was uh, such a robust thumbs up for the tech sector. And I think we'll get into that in the, the main conversation that we're going to have. Laird, Throughout our podcast, you're going to be the proponent and the advocate for the U.S. business sector. And I, I want to do a first run at it in this Nigeria section, which is, you know, you, you did a stint at the Corporate Council in Africa. And I thought maybe you could help us think about uh, the way the U.S. private sector could be helping Nigeria during the COVID-19 outbreak. Thank you for that. I'll give you another thumbs up uh, on some of the comments, uh, particularly from Vig. In my current position, uh, as the state liaison for Prosper Africa. This is something that literally we spend every single day doing as uh, working with coordinating 16 different USG agencies. And we're looking to, to promote US uh, and African trade and investment. And a lot of what we've been doing is frankly, how can we better help plug in US companies to deal with the current set of challenges as well as uh, as now companies are getting a little bit better sense of, of what the ground truth is of post-COVID to chart some of those those senses of what does post-COVID or what does economic recovery begin to look like. And I completely agree with Chuka that uh, the number of challenges in Nigeria are, you know, Nigeria is a super complex place with all kinds of potential, but lots of challenges. And I think the, this would be a great opportunity not to waste a crisis. And so I think the Nigerians have government and business have all known for a long time that Nigeria did need to diversify away from its you know, such heavy reliance on the extractive industries, particularly from the oil sector. And I think this is the time to do that. So American companies are already super active, have long been active in Nigeria. Uh, and it's been great to see a number of them have, have really stepped up in the current crisis. But again, also kind of looking over the horizon, if you will, just to, to give a shout out to two or three of them. Uh, the, certainly the Gates Foundation has been active across the continent, but they've announced an extra $150 million in terms of putting in place a lot of the critical sort of infrastructure, if you will, in terms of clinics and you're getting the training and the capacity and a lot of those kinds of things 
up and moving. They're absolutely focused on the innovation side of it. So a lot of those, a lot of those examples that Vidge mentioned in terms of some of those using health tech or you know remote clinics or things like that, contactless or at least reduced contact kinds of, of delivery. Uh, this is uh, absolutely a great way to to bring in new players to expand some players that have been perhaps a bit more uh, marginal. And Visa, I think, would be another company to flag. Uh, they have announced $210 million to support medium and small enterprises. And again, a lot of that is uh, is precisely in some of those areas that Vidge mentioned in terms of things like how do you get a secure payment system if you can't go down to your local bank or if, you know, frankly, if you no longer, uh, you want your customer to be happy, but you don't really want to uh, exchange currency with them, you know, physically, et cetera. So Visa has done some really interesting, innovative things, and they've been super aggressive uh, about rolling that out. A number of other U.S. companies in the fintech space across West Africa, East Africa, and Southern Africa have been doing similar kinds of things. And then some of the the more traditional folks, uh, so Citibank, for instance, uh, has announced a relatively large percentage of its worldwide response has been in Nigeria. Other companies like Procter & Gamble, et cetera, have uh, big presences there and, and have been very active in terms of uh, trying to help their both their teams, you know, their people, uh, as well as their customers and their local communities. Maybe just to, to set up kind of the next discussion anyway, I think the, the Nigeria has set a pretty good stage in terms of uh, not just taking some of the key actions that they needed to to stabilize the economy, but uh, they've also uh, set up a government private sector coordination group, CA COVID, which has created a pretty good platform for companies to work with governments in terms of being able to provide some kind of the, some of the fast acting responses and assistance, kind of where things are needed, et cetera. I think that will be critical as Nigeria shifts or pivots to uh, what, what does economic recovery start to look like? And maybe the one other piece, just to flag, an absolutely critical piece of support uh, has been the IMF's, frankly, historic uh, $3.4 billion program, which I think will help the government actually start uh, making some of those long-term fiscal reforms, the structural reforms that, frankly, in terms of really opening up the tech sector or some of these other sectors that have such great potential, a lot of those need either some regulatory structure or you know, they need some capacity building, things like that. They face some some issues as to what would be needed to really unleash them. And I, the IMF program is a pretty good start to provide the framework that uh, companies or foreign investors would need to really build that out. Not only, Laird, was that a, a great segue to our main topic, but it allows me to plug a piece that we just published. We did a piece on that references uh, CA COVID, looking at uh, the role of philanthropy in Nigeria responding to both COVID, but the main focus of that piece is what more can philanthropists do to respond to the humanitarian crisis in northern Nigeria, northeast Nigeria. So we'll put a link to that piece uh, in the show notes. So let's move to the topic today, which is the future of work. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic continues to wreak havoc on the global economy. Among those sectors affected financial technology startups across Africa, which had been offering a helping hand to an underdeveloped industry. In fact, experts say that the continent had experienced a fintech revolution. 
If you work in a think tank, everything has to be the future of blank. And probably the one that gets the most attention is the future of work. I'm not denigrating and I'm just pointing it out that there are certain ways that we talk about things at think tank land. And this is certainly one of them. And Vidge, you did an event at CGD at your think tank, Center for Global Development, uh, in December of last year. And so maybe just a high level summary of what do people mean when they say the future of work when it comes to African economies. And that hopefully will set us up a baseline to really talk about the pre-COVID and a post-COVID world. So I think, you know, in the African context, we have a huge demographic dividend, right? We have tens of millions of people who will be entering the labor market over the next several decades. And I think the question for all of us, academics, policymakers, you know, people in think tanks, is how do we create sort of the right conditions for all of these people to find jobs? And I think that's what's worrying us all. And in the sort of pre-COVID world, I think what we were most worried about was the rise of automation. You know, are the robots going to come and get us was the, was the main question, I think. And I think in, the, in that context, we were sort of worried about the fact that, you know, most countries have industrialized through low-cost manufacturing, low-cost, low-skill manufacturing. And I think we're worried that as that pro- those processes become automated, um, where are the jobs going to be for countries that are newly industrializing? you know, for countries that are leaving agriculture and trying to become kind of modern industrialized economies. You know, how are we going to provide jobs for people who are transitioning from rural to urban areas? I think those were the big questions that, you know, we were thinking about and continue to think about. And we are worried, I think, that automation is removing jobs or taking away jobs. I think there's also sort of a related phenomenon, which is the blurring of manufacturing and services. So, you know, something like the cutting and sewing of cloth in the garment sector is now uh, becoming automated. So the person doing the cutting is no longer cutting fabric with a pair of scissors. They are using a computer program or writing a computer program that will cut the fabric for them. And so, you know, the job is transitioning from being sort of a manufacturing-based job to being kind of a more services-based job where you need computer skills. And so I think these are the sorts of questions we're trying to grapple with, you know, what are going to be the skills that are needed for people to be able to enter these sectors as the nature of these jobs are changing dramatically. And if you do have a situation where millions of people uh, need to be entering the job market, you know, how do we cope as uh, technology is changing the way work is done? Yeah, you know, the World Bank produced a paper on the future of work. And it's interesting, Vidge, that the way I read it, strongly on the side of that automation and digital technology wouldn't disrupt too many jobs in Africa, given sort of the low base and the and the work that is going on right now. And not surprising, it concludes with the challenge here is good policy. I think that's a fairly straightforward answer for almost any problem set. But, you know, their focus is on competition, attracting capital, and then in investing in capacity. And I wanted to ask Chuka, but certainly Vig and Laird, if you want to jump in as well, I mean, do you agree with that? And then as we kind of get into the, the meat of this conversation is, does COVID-19 change that conversation? I think yes. The pre-COVID uh, narrative has, you know, in relation with job and the future of work in Africa, there was this sense of um, worry about the disruption of 
jobs as a result of digital technology and automation. It was uh, worrisome because one of the biggest problems in Africa is job creation, which really threatens our uh, capacity to reduce the poverty um, incidence. You know, but here comes this COVID pandemic that has really shown the importance of the adoption of um, digital technology, both in public service delivery, communications, logistics, the health sector, like Ridge has mentioned. The experience has been that the sectors that really thrive during the lockdown periods are mostly the ones that could really operate using digital technologies. So the pandemic has really presented an evidence of, of the positive side of adopting digital technologies, as opposed to the pre-COVID narrative that these, you know, adoption of digital technologies will disrupt um, jobs in Africa. I also think that Africa has huge potentials to increase the adoption of digital technology, you know, given the young population as a result of the demographic dividend. And also Africa has increasingly been active on social media. So it's, you know, stands to is, you know, readily increase this adoption of um, digital technology and automation. Um, it's quite impressive um, hearing from Vig and later the investments, particularly from the private sector, you know, digital technology. But we are really exploring how do we increase this adoption. My experience with um, sectors like education has shown that this COVID pandemic brought a massive disruption to the school cycle because of inabilities to adopt digital technology and learning. There was very limited capacity for remote learning options, particularly in public schools, which has really disrupted education. And so moving to the, the long-term goal of diversifying the economy, digital technology stands as an option of, you know, how do we use digital technology and apply them in sectors the real sectors that will lead Nigeria to diversify away from the oil, oil dependence and also improve you know, other sectors that can absorb more jobs. So I think um, there is a lot of potentials in these two technologies in Africa and this in Africa and uh, Nigeria and this COVID pandemic has really shown those opportunities. Bitch, can you kind of add to, to Chuka's comments, especially because you've done so much work on the tech sector and your paper, I don't know how many years ago it is now, but on manufacturing, the obstacles to manufacturing may be the most cited thing I, I use when talking to people and pretending that I know something about uh, economics. But has COVID-19 changed the way that you're thinking about African economies and, and opportunities and challenges? So I think the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, the related events are perhaps giving a boost to these types of digital technologies and the development of the tech sector in Africa. There's another example, you know, in today's Financial Times of Tribe Masiba funding a platform to pool medical supplies orders across Africa, working in collaboration with Africa CDC. So I think there are opportunities that the pandemic is presenting in terms of developing the tech sector. Now, the paper you mentioned, Judd, my paper on labor costs, what we find is that labor costs in many countries are probably too high to attract the very low cost 
low-skill manufacturing that has powered growth in you know, Bangladesh or even in East Asia back in the 60s and 70s. But it may well be that the skill mix and the cost profile is better suited to a services sector, including the tech sector. And, and there, there may be a lot of scope for growth, more scope than manufacturing, perhaps. And I think in terms of policy, you, know, you mentioned the World Bank report earlier. The, the, the key policy to me is investment in education and making sure that this very large population of young people have the right skills to enter the tech sector. Because in many ways, that is the place to be. You know, it's borderless. You don't have to worry about where you are. You can do the work from wherever you are. You can work for an American company. You can work for companies in Europe. You can work for companies inside Africa. So I think there's a lot of potential for this sector. And and the pandemic is probably going to give rise to more applications, more creative thinking to, you know, address the current crisis. And that perhaps will benefit the tech sector in the long term. So I'm optimistic about the tech sector. Yeah, there's been some really interesting policies from the governments on both mobile money, which kind of builds on what Laird said, but also on education. And just on mobile money, uh, we've seen, particularly in West Africa, most of the fees around setting up mobile money accounts, particularly with MTN, a South African company, being waived. And then the sort of the costs of transferring money have been lowered. On education in South Africa, on the tertiary level, because all the universities are struggling with how do you teach your students in this pandemic, they've been giving data plans. They've been giving free gigabytes up to a, you know, a certain amount to their students and, and providing laptops. So it may result in a higher adoption rate, which I think is phenomenal because that had been one of the you know, stumbling blocks is just the high cost of data or access. And you need those things so that you can actually, you know, really open up and unlock the tech sector. So, you know, there's a real potential here for better policies because of COVID-19. I want to end our conversation talking about, not surprising, uh, where the U.S. is, because the United States government has already spent, I think the number right now is almost a billion, 900 million for Africa in response to COVID-19. And the New Development Finance Corporation and Prosper Africa are encouraging more U.S. investments. And I think the DFC just came out, Laird, you can correct me, with a call for investments specifically related to COVID-19. So if you could build a little more on what the U.S. is doing and the opportunities for the U.S. in a post-COVID-19, I think that would be fantastic. And then, you know, this is just, we'll just make it a straight up pitch. Like, what does the private sector need to know about what Prosper Africa and the U.S. government is doing to make investment easier, even in these difficult times? Great set of questions. I guess uh, maybe just to begin building on the previous discussion, while I'm just as bullish on the, the prospects for the tech sector in Africa in particular, I would suggest that uh, we shouldn't give up on the real economy. If I had to suggest uh, one of the biggest things that will change, I think it's the business models uh, that previously there wasn't a whole lot of value assigned to redundancy or, uh, shall we say, security of supply, that sort of stuff. I think that is one of the first things that will be uh, re-examined. I think companies are already scrambling. Uh, so, for instance, if the key supplier in the health sector, for instance, of an active ingredient is in one country and there's no planes flying, no ships sailing, what do you do? And so there's a whole bunch of re-examination that will take place. This is something where there's already a number of uh, U.S. companies 
that are looking at, does it make sense to work with African partners? Does it make sense to make investments in making PPE, in you know, making some of these more advanced uh, equipment, et cetera? By far the biggest thing that American companies have long looked for is just a clearer sense of what is the trade and investment story in Africa. And I think for a lot of American companies, the challenge has been 54 countries with different you know, lack of harmonized trade rules, lack of harmonized investment rules, et cetera. And so one of the most important things pre-COVID was the African Continental Free Trade Agreement that literally was solving a lot of those key issues, uh, not just harmonizing rules and regulations, not just sorting out things like tariffs, but also setting up really innovative mechanisms. So the U.S. government has been strongly supportive of AFCFTA, and we're continuing to, to work with the African Union and with member countries as they walk through the start of phase two. Phase one was supposed to start in uh, this July. We'll see kind of when all that happens, but but I would you know keep your eye on, on the physical side of it. So it's getting the policies right at the continental level, getting them right at the country level, and then some of the related infrastructure to make all of that stronger pitch, if you will. U.S. government is also, uh, we do a number of things working with individual countries to execute that vision. And so the World Trade Organization, for instance, in the last seven or eight years has had this trade facilitation agreement, which literally walks a country through, how do I be more effective to get a good, you know, let's say a vaccine or whatever it might be, through a port in, in as safe and quick a manner as possible. I think that will become even more important as we continue to move on. And then USTR, for instance, has announced uh, it is negotiating its first of what it hopes to be several free trade agreements with Kenya. And again, all of these things just make it clearer uh, for U.S. investors you know, what the rules of the road are in terms of trade as well as investment. Beyond that, I think uh, particularly important as international supply chains shift, totally understand that U.S. companies often need some help in terms of better understanding as well as also addressing some of the specific commercial risk items. And that indeed is what Prosper Africa was set up to do. Uh, we have uh, set up deal teams at every embassy across uh, Africa. It's a much more effective platform for working with African as well as U.S. companies on specific opportunities, but also on kind of the broader reform set of things. You mentioned a number of our agencies have uh, some very helpful programs. Uh, DFC has just announced this week $2 billion program focused just on health innovation, health investments in Africa. They've just put it on their website uh, and they're looking for expressions of interest. They're looking to, to do deals, if you will. Uh, and so it's a really exciting opportunity. Again, the whole point is it is focused on health and COVID, but again, it builds into this broader narrative. This could be a real opportunity for Africa to, to further sharpen and or rewrite some of its, its trade and investment story as it uh, makes a more compelling case in terms of, of what the future uh, supply chains might look like. That's fantastic. Thank you, Laird. And I do think that Prosper Africa is, you know, a critical initiative that has come out of this administration. And in many ways, I think COVID-19 may give it an opportunity to shine because I think companies are going to be looking to the U.S. government to think about how to move forward in this new environment in the post-COVID world. So let me thank everyone uh, for joining us today. And uh, we'll see you all in two weeks. Thank you. Thank you, Judd. Thank you, Larry. And thank you, Vinge and Thomas. It's been a great session.
Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.